welcome to the Seed World Pro Podcast, where seed industry professionals get the knowledge, tools, and peer support they need to grow their businesses and their careers. I'm your host, Michelle Klieger. Today, guest host Julie Deering catches up with two industry experts to discuss the new era of business. Today, I'm joined by Dean Cavey, a managing partner at Verdant Partners, and Michael Gunderson, the associate director of Purdue University's Center for Food and Agribusiness and also an associate professor. We're going to discuss the dynamics at play in the new era of business in the seed industry. A few of these include the recent mergers and acquisitions and some of the resulting opportunities, the size of farms and uh, the generations involved, as well as the role seed representatives play in consumer trends. Thank you, Dean and Michael, for joining me here today. Um, We are going to talk about the new era of business in the seed industry. We've been through kind of uh, two years of intense change with mergers and acquisitions. We've got a great lineup of topics here um, to discuss that, that I am just really excited to share and to talk about and to get your insight and expertise on. But before we do that, I would like you to just first introduce yourself. Well, my name is Dean Cavey. I am the managing partner of Verdant Partners, and Verdant Partners is a global transaction management company focused on the global agricultural sector with a specific background in the seeds industry. Fantastic. Well, I know you guys are an excellent resource for us. Michael, if you can take a minute to introduce who you are and what you do. I am a professor of agricultural economics at Purdue University, and I think everybody knows we're a top 10 college of agriculture in the world. So I also recently took on a role as director of the Center for Food and Agricultural Business, and we are, uh, we aim to be the executive education partner of choice for agribusiness professionals. So thank you, Michael. I'm a fellow Boilermaker, and you guys are um, just top-notch when it comes to um, your knowledge, um, the commercial farmer, as well as food and agribusiness. And so you do a lot of management and training programs for the seed industry, for individual companies, but as well as for ag retailers. So you have a really comprehensive picture of what's happening out there. I'd like to kind of kick us off. We've come through an evolution in the seed industry. Dean, can you provide some perspective as to, you know, just what seed companies have endured over the last, you know, two to three years and, and, you know, any kind of historical timeline that you might want to put on that? I like to say that the introduction of biological or uh, biotechnology derived traits, I should say, uh, back in the mid 1990s in my mind, really reflected a second agricultural revolution. We obviously had the first revolution at the beginning of the last century with the mechanization of agriculture, but uh, I think we took a huge step forward uh, with the introduction of uh, biotechnology uh, you know, 20-some years ago and the benefits that that produced for the farmer. You know, the farmer was then able to farm more acres with less inputs, less passes over the field. I think they became even more environmentally responsible as a result of using uh, biotechnology-derived traits. That then created much more uh, efficiency at the farming level. And as we all know, that then produced 
what I would describe as a technology-driven consolidation of the seed industry. Starting in about 2004, 2005, there was a rapid consolidation of seed companies on the row crop side because those big companies who controlled the genetic and trade packages also wanted to have a greater level of control over the distribution of those products. And so they they went on a buying spree in order to buy up participants uh, in the distribution channel. And that went on for the next five or six or seven years. And really what brought that process to an end is that all of the significant size companies that were available for consolidation had been bought. Yes, there are a few left out there, uh, like the big independents like Beck's and Burris and Wiffles and Rank, but those are companies that probably are are never going to be acquired. They are highly independent. They're family-driven companies. They expect to remain that way in the future. So uh, we saw that consolidation phase come to an end. And then we went to a second phase of consolidation, and that was really directed at what we often call big data or data management. So that's now been a second level of uh, consolidation that has been driven by the seed industry and by participants in the seed industry. Then after that, we've now just recently gone through the consolidation at the top of the industry with Dow and DuPont coming together to form Corteva, with Bayer Crop Science acquiring Monsanto, and of course with ChemChina acquiring Syngenta, and then Bayer uh, offloading uh, many of its seed-related assets to BASF. So we, we've seen a tremendous change at the top of the industry over the last couple of years. I think long-term will be good for those companies and will be good for the industry because I think it will actually spur additional innovation as these companies become bigger and have greater resources and greater wherewithal, wherewithal to afford the cost of innovation. It's also good, at least in the short to medium term, for the uh, smaller regional and local seed companies. They take great pride in the service that they're able to offer their customer. They have always been able to offer a very high level of service. And uh, I think during the last couple of years, as the big companies were more inwardly focused on these transactions that have occurred, it's allowed the independent companies to focus even more on providing service to their uh, customers. And I think the independent companies have benefited greatly as a result of that. They've had a pretty good run over the last two or three years, and I expect that to continue over the next few years. So we have gone from, you know, six major players in um, the seed and or chemical space. So now we're really looking at four big players there. What opportunities and or disadvantages exist now because of that? You know, I just be curious, Dean, and in a bit of a follow-up to your observations about the cons- rapid consolidation, thinking about North American seed market, you gave a very good picture. Maybe one interesting aside to that is that you've got two intense competitors in Europe thinking, hey, we ought to go to the U.S. and, and get into that marketplace. And instead of each of them coming separately, they join forces and create this AgriLiant group that manages a, you know, a pretty sizable segment of the market. And what do you make of that? That's an interesting question, Michael. 
I'm pretty close to that situation because we've worked extensively over the years with both Group Lemagrain and with KWS, the two parent companies of AgriLiant. And I would say both of those companies have done an outstanding job of building a presence, a significant presence in the U.S. Um, seed market. Both of those companies take a more European approach, which is a more long-term approach to building a company. They're they're not really focused on quarterly results, and in some cases, not so focused on annual results, but more concerned about the long-term strategy and whether they are on pace to achieve those longer-term strategic objectives. I think both KWS and Group Lemagrain have worked very well together to create and implement the strategy that is AgriLiant. I think both of them felt they needed to have a strong presence in the U.S. market. It was the largest seed corn market in the world. The time they uh, they started this process, they primarily built AgriLiant through a series of key acquisitions starting in 1994 and lasting well into the 2000s. I think they did an excellent job of managing the integration of those acquired companies. They didn't rush to change the names and the brands and the people. They pretty much left everything in place for a period of time and then slowly consolidated that into what we see in AgriLiant today. I think it's been a hugely successful uh, effort, and I think it's resulted in obviously one of the leading seed companies in the industry today. I'm really familiar with that story because I've invited uh, Craig Carter, who's with AgriGold, to be a co-instructor in my senior capstone class this semester, and so hear a lot about that organization and the great things that they're doing. And so, you know, I think uh, Julie's question about what are the challenges that consolidation brings, you know, from an economics perspective, we often build models that rely on lots of competitors to help keep the marketplace in check as it relates to price. And so some might have concern as you go from dozens of seed companies down to four big players and then some competition at the edges of that, you know, are the economic models going to continue to work? But I think Dean had probably hit on some of the key things that are driving that consolidation. And when you think about the sizable investments that it takes to bring technology to the marketplace, these organizations are of a financial standing that they can take those long-term risks, those long-term gambles, and ideally they pay off. So I think the other interesting thing in the industry is if you ever tried to draw a map of the competition, there'd be a lot of overlap even amongst competitors in terms of the different things that we put in those little things we call seeds. And so there's some genetics and some traits and some stacking and all these things. I think that uh, has the opportunity to benefit producers, right? So if they can keep on innovating and bringing additional technology that has the potential to help producers and, uh, you know, from an economics perspective, we'd hope that rivalry continues to uh, keep prices in check and make sure that farmers are in a position to benefit from uh, the value creation in addition to the seed companies. A lot of potential there, and, and I'm certainly excited to see it unfold in the coming decades. There is a lot of potential there. I want to keep uh, moving along. You know, as we've looked at the structure of um, the seed companies changing through the mergers and acquisition space, we're also seeing changes in terms of the makeup of the farmer. We're seeing the farmer increase in scale, as well as the dynamics involved in, in each operation. Can you tell me a little bit about what your research is showing and what you're seeing there? In the center, we do a large commercial producer survey every 
four years and there we're trying to get at pretty high level understanding of a farming operation. So what do they perceive makes them successful? How do they go about executing on that? And then how do they build relationships with suppliers? So what do they value in their retailers? What do they value in their salesperson? And a focus that we've had a long time in the survey is around loyalty. And I think uh, in marketing circles, loyalty is a bit of a holy grail. And if that's the case, then the seed industry has uh, has found it because amongst the ag inputs that we ask about, seed tends to have the largest percent of producers that view themselves as loyal to a seed brand. And so I suspect that arises for a couple of reasons and not least of which the decision about seed is probably the most complex uh, we've got different soil types and different soil fertility and different uh, weather patterns and different uh, degree growing days. And so as a producer is trying to make sense of all that, a seed company that comes with more than just yield in mind can be bringing a lot of extra value to that producer. And as they work with them over time can really develop a loyal relationship. That's what our research says, that these producers tend to be pretty loyal to seed. I don't know if <clears throat> Dean sees it the same out there in the field and if he thinks it's changing at all. I completely agree with what you've just said, Michael, and I agree with all of the supporting reasons. Seed has become a progressively and an increasingly technical decision that a grower has to make. You know, before the advent of technology as we know it today, the farmer's decision was much easier. It was strictly a genetics decision, and he relied heavily on his sales representative to help him make that decision. So now the farmer has to make a decision based on what genetics package is correct, what trait package is correct, and in some cases, what sort of data analysis package he wants to use, he or she wants to use to uh, enable he or she to make the best decision. It's almost an overwhelming decision that that farmer has to make, and I think we know that those farmers look to their seed sales representative to help them make that decision. And I think that's more the case today than it was five years ago, and certainly more than it was 25 or 30 years ago. The seed company continues to be in a really important position of helping the grower make the right decision for his or her farming operation. And that has created a tremendous level of loyalty and it's hard to break that loyalty. Even even with the price discounting that we've seen off and on in this industry over the years, the farmer is sometimes reluctant to buy seed at a lower price from a different company because it's going to break that loyalty relationship he has with his trusted uh, seed sales rep. Another thing I think that comes into play, you know, all the talk about sustainability and are we growing a crop to feed the world sustainably? You know, farmers are the original sustainable decision makers. They understand that you can't take so much out of the operation in one period, you know, quote unquote, be focused on one period profit at the expense of future year's profits. And, you know, if you only come with sort of a yield conversation and ignore the soil health and the long-term benefits of managing pests and those kinds of things, producers are going to tune out and they want to have that long-term relationship because decisions aren't uh, made in a year-by-year -year vacuum. These are multi-year decisions that influence the long-term success. And every farmer to a T across the globe that I've ever interacted with wants to leave that farming operation, leave that soil in better condition than what they started it with. 
One of the questions that I have that kind of you, you've both somewhat hit upon is um, goes back to, to loyalty, yield, and um, seed pricing somewhat, as well as the role of the retailer. We've seen some um, changes in the marketplace happening, you know, and just consumer trends in general. So, you know, consumers moving, not moving toward, they have moved towards Amazon. And you've got um, some ag companies um, that are looking to do more retail sales online. Farmers Business Network that kind of, I think Michael said it best the other day, the Amazon of agriculture and and whether that can come to fruition or not, you know, we'll have to wait and see. One of the stats that I have in front of me here is 39% of farms with sales of more than $250,000 do purchase at least some of their inputs online compared to 24% of farms with sales between $10,000 and $99,000. How loyalty are farmers and how price sensitive are they on on that package? Well, I think the price sensitivity, Julie, has has certainly increased with the continued depressed nature of commodity prices. When commodity prices were roughly double what they are today, the farmer was was willing to pay more for seed and trade packages. He was willing to pay, obviously, for equipment replacement or renewal or additions. It's a tough environment we're in right now with the commodity price levels that the farmer is dealing with. And so I think that has caused the farmer to become much more sensitive about all of his input cost. And I think that has not, seed has not been immune to that. Uh, instead of the farmer planting a bag of seed that may have had six or seven or eight traits stacked in it, they're now being much more specific in the traits that they need for their particular growing area. And so I think the farmer is is looking at all sorts of options uh, as to what they can do to control the price of all their inputs, including seed. And I think that's going to continue to be the case. In the last few years, we've seen a tremendous ramp up in the level of interest uh, for biologicals, biostimulants. And, and that's really a cost-based decision. That's a cost-based strategy. You know, we've seen a lot of companies, both small and large, moving quickly to establish a stronger technical position in the biological products that they're able to offer to the farmer, either as an alternative to seaborne traits or at least as a way to supplement those traits uh, that they are acquiring in a, in a bag of seed. One of the interesting things is recharge for a bag of seed, and you've already talked about it, comes with a bundle of genetics and traits, and maybe producers are starting to unwind some of those traits. But the other thing that the industry, particularly when seed goes through a retail channel, has bundled into that price are some of the services they bring on the backside or on yeah on the backside of that. So after you get that uh, seed in the ground, there are some services that maybe the retailers tend to provide, and they've bundled the cost of those services into the bag of seed. And now as producers are able to use this information in terms of price transparency to say, well, actually the bag of seed costs this and you've been charging this for these other things. Now I start as a producer, look at it and say, are those things that you've been charging me for in the past things that I want to continue to pay for? Do I want to continue to use you as a supplier of those? Are you the lowest cost supplier of those other things that we've been bundling into the cost of a bag of seed? So I think it'll for sure change the way the the nature of the relationship with a producer, but anybody that has been creating value for the customer shouldn't be worried. They should be uh, actually pretty eager to have that conversation and continue to show why they're a valued supplier. 
you know, we've talked about service and talked about data management and technology being a driver of some of the merger and acquisitions a number of years ago. But what are some of the strategies that seed companies can deploy to put themselves ahead of the competition? I think what producers are looking for is help navigating those things. So, um, you know, if you think about all the tools that are out there, there's just so many tools and there's so many different places to get a lot of information that would help with decision making. And at some point in time, there's so much out there in the marketplace, it just becomes noise rather than signals to help you understand what are the best decisions. So I think there's some opportunity uh, for seed companies to bring a lot of that disparate information, a lot of that scattered information together and help a producer understand how that's relevant to his or her farm and decision making there. So, um, and maybe that's creating useful dashboards that summarize the key uh, pieces of information and makes it really accessible and drives decision making. Maybe it's uh, helping understand what are the hardware. Um, what's the hardware that we need to be able to collect the information on our farm to make improved decisions. So it'd be really silly, I think, for a seed company to invest in delivering that hardware to the farmer, but to understand what the options are and how that uh, helps them make better decisions about seeds, I think that's really a big opportunity. I agree. And to build upon uh, what Michael just said, I honestly think there are more tools available to the farmer today and what will fit in the farmer's toolbox. And so the farmer has to make decisions about which tools uh, he wants to put in his toolbox and use on, on an ongoing basis. And the farmer is probably not capable of making those decisions on his own. Therefore, he needs advice from others who, who do have a broad perspective on how best to use all of those tools available in the industry. And I think that leads us back to the conversation we had earlier about the loyalty that the farmer shows to his seed representative. Typically, the seed rep has a very broad perspective as to which tools can best be used to produce the best results on a farm-by-farm basis. Farmer is probably always a bit concerned that, that he's getting some biased advice because obviously the seed sales rep wants to sell his seed company's product. And so the farmer wants to make sure he's getting relatively objective, unbiased uh, input in order to use the best tools available to produce the best tool or best results on his farm. That's why I think you see companies like FBN, Farmers Business Network, trying to demystify the application of a lot of these tools and products that are available and try to help the farmer make better decisions. I think the ag retailers are trying to do the same thing. The ag retailers are maybe in a better position even than the seed companies are to provide the farmer with a wide variety of input decision-making assistance. They, they have a broad perspective of fertilizer, genetics, technology, even uh, ag technology or so-called big data, they have a very broad perspective and can hopefully bring their expertise to bear in the advice they're providing to the farmer. Yeah, Dean, I completely agree. One of the interesting things that happens in our large commercial producer survey, so about two iterations ago, I started to ask about the depth of that loyalty. So not just are you loyal or not, but 
are there levels of loyalty and how far up that loyalty ladder do you scale? And, and we based it off some research from the business school side in terms of business to business relationships. And one of the things is one of the higher rungs of the ladder is that you do all of your business with this one supplier. And the interesting thing about seed, even though they have the largest percentage of farmers self-identifying as loyal to a seed brand, almost all farmers live uh, the trust but verify motto, right? So they'll plant 80%, 90% of the acreage in one seed brand, but then for whatever reason, uh, just to keep them honest, they go and get 10 to 20% somewhere else and just test those yields themselves. So I think, you know, that's an interesting dynamic that happens in our industry and producers are paying attention because they do want to make sure if they're putting a lot of stock in one company that they've also got some good reason to continue to have that faith in them. So, but a lot of opportunity on the technology side. And I think just like Dean, if the seed rep is the one helping cut through all that noise, they're really going to build an important relationship. Michael, I don't know if your research shows this to be the case or not, but, but my unofficial observations in the industry would suggest that the smaller grower, 200 to 2,000 acres, let's say, tends to have a much higher level of loyalty than the, the much larger, more sophisticated grower who may be you know, farming 10 to 20,000 acres. I think the, 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 the large-scale farming operation probably has less loyalty because they're looking for the best economic decision that they can make. So they will go wherever they need to go to get the best products and services at the best prices they can. If you just looked at it sort of at the surface level, that's absolutely true. So we tend to see lower levels of self-identified loyalty, the larger the farm gets. But I think if you sometimes dig into the data a little bit and really understand it, what those large scale producers are really good at is understanding when somebody brings them value. Right. And so they're willing to uh, work with a trusted relationship that helps bring that value. But they're also um, not hesitant to turn to another supplier if they think they're going to also bring the same or more value to that relationship. And the other thing that happens in our data set is we tend to pick up larger share of younger producers relative to, say, some of the USDA Ag Census and ARMS data. And so often what we see tends to be the case, those younger producers are still not uh, self-identifying as loyal uh, at the rate that uh, older producers are. Part of that, I think, is just the nature of where they are in the operational cycle. They're still early in their careers. They're still trying to figure out who are the relationships they need to be loyal to. Um, and I don't think it necessarily is them a characteristic of them that they're always going to be less loyal. I think they're just still out there trying to understand who's going to bring value, who's going to help me be successful in the long run in this business that I'm intending to be in uh, for another 40 or 50 years. I'm glad you mentioned that, Michael, the younger generation in the farm, and I wanted to be able to touch upon the dynamics on today's farms that maybe weren't there, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. More and more, we're seeing three generations involved in a farming operation, and that puts some really interesting dynamics at play. And as a as a salesperson or a seed consultant, who do I approach in the farm, and what what difference does that make to me as a seed company? 
I always sort of chuckle to myself when I see the headlines about the farmer average age, you know, climbing up and almost being stratospheric levels because that is the case. Usually when USDA asks about farmer age, they're asking about the principal operator and almost by definition, the oldest person is going to be the principal operator. So if you looked at the distribution of management and leadership of farming. If you looked at the decision-making, it's probably much more spread out across the ages and the average is probably a little bit lower than what we usually think about. But, you know, I think for a long time, our ag retail partners, our ag seed company partners have been trying to figure this question out. If you have a farming operation with multiple decision makers in, in it, how do you approach that operation about the things that you want to influence that you want to help them succeed in? You know, and that's going to take some legwork on a seed reps part to figure out who's the right person to talk about that particular uh, decision, but also going to have to understand the chain of influence. So how does that person you're working with directly then influence the others that maybe you don't see face to face as often? That's a really interesting point you've raised, Michael. We often hear the average age of the farmer in the U.S. is about 68 years old. And um, when we think about the adoption of new technologies, whether it be online purchases or whether it be the use of big data, there's this assumption that the 68-year-old farmer is probably not going to be real open-minded to adopting these new technologies and these new purchasing techniques. But I think that does overlook the fact that oftentimes that 68-year-old farmer may have a couple of sons or daughters working with him in, in his business, and those sons and daughters are progressively having greater input in the way that farming operation gets managed, including purchasing decisions and, and the use of technology. I, I agree with you completely, Michael. I think that is a little bit of a uh, misconception about how new technologies and, and new purchasing decisions can get uh, implemented. Maybe we don't have to wait for another generation of farmers to come forward. Maybe that's already happening now, sort of behind the scenes. So I want to move kind of beyond the farm. There are also some outside factors that play that um, certainly are impacting what farmers are planting, but as well as the seed production and, and demand and, and all the way down the chain. You know, let's talk about kind of global influences. At Purdue, we're guilty of not just drinking the Kool-Aid, but mixing it and serving it when we talk about feeding uh, 9 billion people by 2050, right? And so even though we've added about 180 million acres of crop ground around the globe, the total acres of corn and soybeans in the U.S. We've added that amount of uh, acreage around the globe to help feed this growing population. And lots of crops being grown, lots of places, and then they've got to flow to the places where they get consumed. And unfortunately, it is the case that oftentimes where we grow them and where they get consumed, we have uh, these man-made barriers, these political barrier boundaries that we put around. And those boundaries can often cause as much trouble as the physical distance it takes to get from one place to the next. We know there's pretty strong evidence that uh, as our negotiations with China unfolded and they put some place in some tariffs for our soybeans, that Argentina could buy our soybeans at a price that would allow them to turn around in 
sell it to China for about $2 or $2.40 a bushel more than what they purchased it from us. And all it took was $1.20 to get it from us to, to Argentina. So they can, you know, automatically arbitrage $1.20 a bushel just because of the political barriers that we put into place. So if you think about global grain flows, global grain trade, there it's pretty well understood what the demand's going to be. I think we have seen a slowdown in terms of the amount of folks joining the middle class. It's, I mean, there's still a lot of uh, economic growth that's happening and growth in per capita income around the globe, but certainly not as rapid as we saw in China where 300 million people joined the middle class in a couple of decades. And then on the ethanol side, we've seen, at least in the U.S. market, probably sort of the cap, the maximum consumption of ethanol that we're going to see for the foreseeable future. So these global grain flows are going to continue to happen. As I visited with producers last week about Outlook, we noted that we lost about $700 million or 700 million bushels of trade with uh, China. And folks thought, well, these global Grain flows means that our grain is going to go somewhere else. They're going to start buying our grain as these other suppliers go to China. And what we've seen is only about half of that lost bushels of trade with China have come back with trade with other places. And I think producers were challenging me, how can that be? And as I was thinking through that, I think one of the things that could be happening is China might have some stocks of soybeans that they're drawing down in this period of uh, trade negotiation. Um, And so as that unwinds, are we going to get those markets back? Maybe, but the disappointing thing is that uh, they probably never would have looked anywhere else if we hadn't started this negotiation. We do have an increasing population that has to be fed on a declining number of high quality productive acres around the world. Therefore, we have to rely on technologically derived higher yields to do that. When transgenic crops were introduced back in the mid-1990s, certain parts of the world, uh, not the least of which was Europe, immediately uh, took issue with the uh, introduction of, of that technology in their market areas. And so when I would go to international seed conferences, the discussion for the first 10 or 15 years was how soon will Europe break with tradition and start to allow the introduction of these transgenic crops into their markets so that uh, European farmers can be more competitive with U.S. farmers. (laughs) Now we go to international seed conferences and we talk about how Consumers in the United States are becoming progressively more concerned about the use of transgenic technology in the production of food that those folks are are consuming. The discussion is going the wrong way on us, and unfortunately, it's not a scientific-based discussion. It's a discussion that's taking place in in the public and the political domains of the world, and, and there's a different agenda there than just how can we best feed nine or 10 billion people uh, 30 years from now. And I think that's really concerning because if we continue to have those barriers in the use of new technologies, I don't know how we're ever going to be able to achieve that objective in 2050. I'm glad you brought that up, Dean. I think, you know, that's definitely another outside influencer that I had on my list is, you know, consumer sentiment, especially as it applies to technology in their food. And it certainly influences demand and that social license to operate. Even when you ask some companies, are you using gene editing? 
techniques, they are still waiting on governments around the world to determine how and or if those will be regulated as, you know, traditional plant breeding methods or whether they will be um, regulated like genetically modified seeds or something similar to. One of the interesting pieces of research that came out recently, right? So all the millennials get a bad rap for killing off uh, processed foods and canned tuna and all these things. But one of the bright spots of uh, millennial decision-making around food is that they are much less skeptical about the benefits of GMOs. And so they're not quite as opposed to that technology as we see the the baby boomers and the Gen X beans. So maybe on the horizon out there, the scientists will have done their job convincing this is the way forward to help uh, feed a growing population sustainably on this planet. Well, the unfortunate thing, Michael, is that when transgenic crops were first introduced, the benefit was derived by the farmer and only indirectly uh, benefited the ultimate consumer. But the consumer didn't see that, the consumer didn't understand that, and we didn't give the consumer any benefits or any apparent benefits from the this new technology application in the production of corn or soybeans or cotton or whatever it may be. And that's largely still the case today. The consumer is not seeing the benefit of this technology, at least not directly. And they don't understand nor do they appreciate the benefit that the farmer is receiving from this technology, which then allows the farmer to produce more food at cheaper prices that these folks can enjoy at the supermarket every single day. Well, and that's that's the that's the part of the scientific story we ag economists want to tell that oftentimes these technologies help the producer be more efficient to help them be more successful. But a lot of that uh, benefit tends to get passed on to the consumer, and it's the it's the reason that the real price of corn has continued to march downward through history, right? I mean, we're using technology to help producers be successful, and they don't keep all that benefit in terms of efficiency to themselves repass that all along down the value chain. So I agree with you 100%. It's too bad we can't uh, do a better job of helping the consumer link that steady, uh, low price food back to the technology we're using. I was just going to add quickly that I always like to say that I think it's very unfortunate that cow genes flavor saver tomato eventually got killed off in the marketplace because that was the one biological crop or bio technology derived crop that produced a significant benefit for the consumer. And I think had that have gone forward and become a commercial reality on a consistent basis, we may have had a different attitude today about the use of transgenic technology in the production of crops that consumers consume directly. As farmers have more tools in their toolbox than they've ever had before, and you know they need help kind of cutting through the clutter to determine what's going to find the most or deliver the most value. We, as as seed companies, as farmers, as others involved in agriculture, whether it's from an economics perspective or a food manufacturing perspective, have more tools in our toolbox to tell that story. You know, our smartphones are awesome. We can record audio. We can take video. We can take pictures. 
filters, you can edit, compile it, compose something and post it on Instagram in a matter of minutes. You don't have to send it to production um, site to have something be professionally produced that's going to be compelling. And, and authenticity is the key word today, you know, in, in helping to talk about food and talk about what you do. It's really exciting um, that we have these tools in our hands almost every second of the day. The part that concerns me and kind of Michael pointed out is the people who are maybe least accepting of technology in their food today is um, the baby boomer and uh, um but they're the ones making policy and regulations in today's environment and so will the next generation are we moving up into that too late and will that story already be told um, or that pathway be set before we can un unravel it i think that's a very warranted concern if we use the policy hammer people are going to make decisions based on that and if there's a strong policy that says you can't use that technology there's not going to be uh, any reason to invest and innovate there so uh, i would share a pretty similar concern i agree i want to kind of tie two things together is that you've got, you know, kind of our U.S. comparative advantage diminishing in some capacities. We're still very competitive in certain markets. But, and then you've also got consumer demand and consumer trends. And you, you can't go to a restaurant today and not see a blackboard that says fresh and locally produced, whatever that is. If that's, um, you know, Angus burger, or if that's uh, <laughs> a veggie burger, you know, or, or salad, those are two buzz words everywhere. Does that present some opportunities for farmers to change what they're growing and their rotation or their um, acre allotment to your traditional maybe corn and bean rotation? In terms of comparative and competitive advantage, for the long, longest time, the U.S. enjoyed competitive and comparative advantage in growing a lot of crops because of our investment in research and development. And so we're always out on the front edge of uh, pushing yields, improving sustainability, and the rest of the globe paid attention and they started to catch up. And so there are investments in places like Latin America and the, in Asia that are catching up with us. But because of the boom in demand because of the surge in the population and the incomes that folks have to spend on things. We've never had to worry about stop growing food altogether, right? So we've gotten out of some commodities. We're producing much less wheat than we have historically because we're much more relatively efficient at growing corn and soybeans compared to say uh, Europe where they still grow quite a bit of wheat. So, you know, as this happens, the markets are going to figure out who has the comparative advantage and that's where we're going to focus. But I do think that younger consumers are interested in a much less processed diet and many more fresh options. And by definition, that's not corn and soybeans. That's uh, things like lettuce and fruits and uh, other vegetables. So, and those things don't store well, they don't uh, travel well, and their handling is a lot more. And so while it certainly presents some opportunity for our producers in the Midwest, they're going to have to see probably a bigger return to the acre in order to consider shifting and making some big investments to make that possible on their operation. Yeah, I think what you've described, Julie, to me is almost more of a threat than it is an opportunity. And I think it highlights the fact that consumers are not very well educated about where their food comes from. I agree with you. You go into a restaurant and promoting locally sourced food, and they even have the name of the farm where the food came from. 
I don't know what the consumer does with that to know that it comes from ABC farm uh, as, as opposed to any other farm to me doesn't allow the consumer to make a different or a better decision than if they didn't know that at all. But for some reason, there's this perception that the consumer, I think particularly the younger consumer has, that if it's produced locally and that if they know the name of the farm and the farmer where it was produced, it must be better, it must be healthier, it must be fresher, and probably has less of a risk of some sort of a foodborne disease issue. I think nothing could be further from the truth. And I think that ties in with what I said earlier about the reluctance of consumers to accept new technology in the production of food crops. I think the more they believe in this locally sourced food attitude they have, the less likely they're going to be to to accept the production of food coming from newer technologies, whether it be transgenic or gene editing or whatever the technology is of the future. I would love to continue this conversation. I know I'm bumping up against uh, um, kind of our uh, one hour mark here. So I have one um, kind of last point or topic that I would like to approach. And that is just, if you could summarize what seed companies need to be watching out for in maybe just, you know, three quick bullet points, or if you could make a kind of my, my newest question has been, if you could create a billboard and you could create a billboard on this particular topic and place it on the highway for seed companies or seedsmen as they pass by, what would your billboard, billboard read? That's an interesting question. I think my billboard would be trust the farmer your life depends on it. That's, I love it. That's great. And, and uh, Julie was asking for three. So I was trying to come up with three here, not unrelated to what Dean said. I'd say, first of all, pay attention to the relationships, pay attention to those farmer customers and don't try to bring a one size fits all solution to every producer that you're working with, because as we see industry consolidation happening, each of these producers are building a successful operation with different objectives, different goals, different ways they want to manage and really spending some time understanding them is going to be pretty key. The second thing I would say is, you know, a seedsman needs to be scanning the marketplace. So needing to be sure that they're uh, widely read, paying attention to the news for all its faults, you know, maybe spending some time on Twitter and seeing what is happening out in the marketplace and helping uh, be prepared to have a conversation with a producer about how these global events and uh, national events have an impact on them and the things that they're trying to do. So the last piece is uh, always staying focused on delivering value to that customer. So you can't be all things to everybody. And so you've got to make sure you have your elevator pitch about why your uh, suggestions are valuable to that customer. Know what you're good at and stick to it. Dean, you mentioned something very interesting, uh, you know, is, is trust the farmer. And, and I think that would just be a great billboard in and of itself. Oftentimes, you know, we quote or cite USDA numbers. One of the interesting things I found in my research was, according to the Department of Labor, just 0.29% of the U.S. population is actively involved in farming, 
fishing and forestry. If you break that down in farming, fishing and forestry, 0.29% of the population. And we rely on that percent for the food on our plate three times a day. That's incredible. And USDA's number that you go and see is 11% of the population, but that's of agriculture and related industries. And that's, that's, those numbers are staggering when you really think about it. Yeah, it really is. I agree. And I think the unfortunate thing is because so few people are directly involved in farming and in uh, the the provision of food uh, for our population, there isn't the education that really informs the consumer about agriculture and about food production, about food safety, and about, uh, you know, the technology that goes into the production of food crops. I think in our schools, our our uh, primary schools, our middle schools, our high school, we don't have to teach kids how to be a farmer, but we need to start teaching them something about where their food comes from, so that they can they can make informed decisions in the future about the foods they want to eat, about where those foods come from, and how they're produced. You know, I work in a college of agriculture, and people sometimes want to define agriculture very narrowly as that production that happens on the farm. And I think, you know, if you took any other value chain across any other industry, so if you thought about like the automobile industry or you thought about um, uh, information technology, and you only took a tiny slice of it and said that characterizes everything, that would be a pretty strong misrepresentation. So the research that I've seen is that actually food and agribusiness, so getting a crop grown, processed, and ready to be retailed is the largest employer in the U.S. and we certainly add a substantial amount of value to that process. So it's one of the reasons that we uh, have departments of agricultural economics that are thinking broadly about the food value chain and the importance of having some leadership in there. And the other thing I would note, uh, mostly just because it'll help ensure some job security for me, is that on the horizon is a lot of retirements and shifts in, in the entire agribusiness value chain. So it's not just happening on the farm, but all along those companies and seed companies and Included, and we have a demand of more than 50,000 new baccalaureates in agriculture, natural resources, and related sciences. And the land-grant universities and non-land-grant land grant university colleges of agriculture only generate about 37,000 a year. And so we've got this gap. Uh, and I think it's related to observation from Dean about those that grew up with no agriculture in their background. They don't understand where their food comes from. We're also probably going to have to bring some of those people into the industry to help us be successful, to have enough uh, talent, to be able to continue to have an efficient value chain. And there's a big, uh, big learning curve. You know, some employers in the past said the uh, most important characteristic was coming from an ag background. Well, they can't find those folks. And so now they're saying, when I get them here, when I get them in the, in the business, we're going to have to train them on agriculture 101. That's a great note to end on is that there's a lot of growth. There's a lot of opportunity. There's a large demand for jobs in this field across many different industries. The future in terms of employment and the need for is, is brighter than it's you know, been in a long, long time. So I want to say thank you to you both for joining me here, talking through these topics. Again, thank you. I think you've provided um, some good context and discussion around um, today's environment and, and what seed companies are up against. Well, thanks for having me, Julie. I really enjoyed the conversation. And Same, same with me. I appreciate the opportunity, Julie. I, uh, I really enjoyed interacting with you, uh, Michael, and uh, look forward to, uh, to doing that some more in the future. 
That's it for today's Seeds of Change podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to check out our new platform, SeedWorld Pro. You can learn more at seedworld.com backslash pro. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining.